Thank you for tuning in. Today we have something special. Rico Kittingdongo, a principal architect and community designer, joins us on the podcast to talk about something important, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the AEC industry. We have a thoughtful, free-ranging, and rich conversation, and we do so from a perspective that we often don't get to hear from. Fortunately, we do today. And this episode is one you may very well want to listen to more than once. Rico has a passion for community and people and for social change through design. We talk about agency, access, the power of having open conversations at all levels in our organization, especially at the top, the moral and the business case for equity, diversity, and inclusion, how we can begin to do more, and why we need to start spending time in different zip codes if we really want to make a difference and bring change. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Today, we'll be talking with Rico Kittingdongo a principal architect, and so much more, as you'll be able to hear today and see in the show notes. And we'll be discussing equity, diversity, and inclusion. Welcome to the podcast, Rico. Uh, thank you for having me, Peter. Great. Well, I really appreciate uh, your time and, and sharing today. Um, I first met Rico at a conference in Seattle earlier, earlier this year where Rico was part of a panel talking about EDI, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the AEC industry. And I was really impressed by what he shared, his thoughtfulness, and his candor. And Rico, before we begin, can you share a little bit about yourself, how you got into architecture, your career path, becoming a leader in a small firm, and then merging with a larger organization, and, and what you're focused on today? Sure. Um, and thank you for that introduction. So. Uh, again, my name is Rico Kittingdongo. I'm uh, the civic design lead uh, for the Northwest region here at DLR Group. We're a large architecture and engineering firm, which uh, we have 30 cities across, or we are in 30 cities across the globe. Uh, I came from a small practice community-based um, that I started working in straight out of a graduate school at a University of Washington. Um, uh, here in Seattle. Uh, began in 1996. We were a firm of 10. I helped grow it to a firm of 28 uh, by the time we got to 2008. Uh, and of course, with so many small firms, um, uh, we managed to weather the storm of the recession for a number of years, but ultimately uh, the firm founder and I uh, chose to close that practice and uh, uh, 2013, which is when I uh, moved over to uh, DLR Group. Um, so I'm a born and raised Seattleite. Uh, I uh, grew up uh, as a uh, 
small black child in white suburbia uh, in Kirkland, Washington, uh, and decided to go to Washington University in St. Louis for my undergraduate uh, in architecture, uh, which as, as well as I was able to conceive of it at that time, it was getting me as far away from uh, my uh, sheltered uh, upbringing in, in as, as possible. St. Louis is very different than growing up in the Northwest. Uh, and there's a, there's a huge divide between haves and have nots um, and uh, some very uh, challenging race issues that, that, are, that were being dealt with in that city at that time and, and in the late 80s. Uh, and certainly still no less true now, um, true of cities all over the nation, of course. Um, but it was it was a eye-opening experience for me, which bringing that back to the Northwest because my family is here and I knew that I wanted to practice here. Uh, I did my graduate work at University of Washington uh, and uh, did a thesis. Uh, I wanted to do something that was born of the community uh, and about the community and by the community. Uh, I had the opportunity to do my thesis on the Northwest African American Museum here uh, and ultimately um, had the opportunity to build that uh, project. I was the project architect uh, uh, and was able to see it through to fruition in, in 2008. Um, so it, it um, you know, now being in a in a large practice, uh, what I what I'm able to do here is take a, a a lot of the thinking that we put in place in our community based small practice and apply it in a larger national conversation, uh, leading the civic design piece of our work here um, in our justice and civic studio in the Northwest but then also being a part of a conversation around design agency in the firm nationally, the idea that we all, we all have agency to, to, it, uh, regardless of where we came from or what our background is or what our education is. Um, the idea that, that we should be out involved in the community, um, doing good work, uh, connecting the dots and um, that, you know, doing good work in the community and, uh, also finding ways to create uh, project opportunities for the practice um, that kind of drive its, uh, both its mission, vision, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, the profitability of the firm, but those aren't mutually exclusive. Um, so when you say agency, we all have agency, what, what exactly do you mean by that? Um, so, it, you know, it's interesting in a, in a, in a firm that has a large percentage of millennials, um, I think what I hear often is uh, is a conversation around uh, access uh, and a conversation uh, around um, uh, being respected. Well, being respected. Uh, and I, I, it's interesting because I think that that conversation is paralleled in a conversation uh, around social equity uh, and diversity uh, outside of the walls of, of the practice. So what is agency? Um, a, agency is having the power 
to affect a thing, uh, whether that's a project, whether that's a design, whether that's a policy, whether that's a development investment. Uh, I think that for a younger generation uh, and for uh, uh, a large percentage of people of color, uh, we feel like there's a lot that we are impacted by or a lot going on around us, um, but uh, that we don't have the ability to impact the conversation or affect the conversation. And so the, the design agency uh, initiative that, that uh, we've been able to start here at DLR Group has been around the idea that we all have permission and that we all have power. Um, you have the perspective that you come from, you have uh, the family, community, education, um, uh, relationships uh, that are important in your own personal universe. And with those things, those have value uh, and that value uh, can be connected back to the work that you do or the work that you want to do. Um, and there's mutual benefit for both individual and collective in investing in those things. Is that one of the benefits of having a diverse design team as far as projects delivered? Because, you know, if, if you have the right type of diversity for the clients or the communities that you're serving, you're able to design solutions that are, that, that are culturally relevant or culturally inspirational in that sense. I mean, it seems like that's one of the benefits of having your design team at least resemble and be sensitive to um, the community that you're serving. Yeah, I think that's a critical issue. And it's a, it's a difficult one because depending on the client opportunity, you know, you're, you may not have on staff the representation that inherently matches the client being served. Um, I, but it depends on, on, on uh, who the client is. And so I, I would say that being uh, involved in the community that you want to serve and, and beginning to build relationships with uh, the community that is, that's being represented uh, can do a lot to help connect the dots. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I, I am an African-American architect or I am an architect and I'm African-American. Um, inherently, that means that, that me doing a, a project like the Northwest African American Museum, I'm, I inherently come from a, a place of understanding and empathy and knowledge as it relates to African-American community. Now, not all black people are the same. <laughs> and, and so under, understanding that there's a process of engaging community where, uh, you know, you're polling, you're interviewing, you're surveying, you're creating living room conversations, uh, you're, you're meeting people where they're at, you're going to this fundraiser, that, uh, this church gathering, uh, this school opportunity, uh, and talking to real people about real things. Um, that's the only way that you can learn, can engage, learn, and be a part of uh, community in a real way that then allows you to have 
the data points that inform development in that community, design of, of a built environment in that community, policy making for, for that community, all of those things. Um, certainly, along, certainly along the lines of asset-based community development, that the stronger the relationships, the stronger you understand the strengths of that community, the, the stronger you can kind of work together and even innovate. You know, you, you're yes. already starting across the 50-yard line, so to speak, yes. as it relates when, when, when people are similar, you can kind of work together um, and develop that innovation. You know, there's a less of a learning curve and I guess more of a, an innovation curve that you can get on quicker. And it, it seems like more specifically in kind of the architectural space or, or any space, any design world where your, your elements that are seen and inhabited, I, I feel they have to have more cultural rele relevance, you know, a, a water line and a sewer line that's eight feet below grade. I mean, there's, there's less there, but in any building structure place, I, my gut feeling is it benefits from a lot of diversity on the design team to really create the elements that ultimately the client, the community is looking for. Um, I think that's true. I think also authenticity is an issue. So if I have been on the ground in the trenches working with a community-based not-for-profit on an issue of import for that community where I have gotten to know them and they've gotten to know me, when there is that project opportunity, their new building, their new community center, their new school, that, that, that community is gonna be far more likely or interested to ask me to come to the table to do that work for them because not only am I a known entity, they know that I know what's important to them because I've been along for the ride, I've been involved in that process of cultivation um, with them. And so I, I think that uh, it's, you know, it's as much about diversity of experience uh, and, and investment as it is about diversity uh, of race and gender and culture. I think that is equally important. I, I think that uh, the veil through which we all see the world, um, and I, I, thinking of the book, uh, Ways of Seeing by John Berger. Um, we all see the world differently um, and we all see before we speak. And so it has to be understood that we all come from a place of bias. Uh, and if doing a project for a, a particular culture that is not our own, it's very important for us to have, ideally have two things, representation of that culture as a part of the team, um, but then also, uh, frankly, some form of cultural sensitivity training that allows us to learn more about and be more sensitive to the cues, needs, and values of that culture, which is separate and or different from our own. Right. And, that, and and so having a team, so being able to be responsive and, and the fact that, you know, each generation we get more and more diverse and, you know, that more, you know, it's projected by what, 2045 minority populations will actually be the majority, you know, here in the country. So that's going to change the makeup 
obviously of communities, of clients, and of possibly the types of projects to be served. And certainly, you know, how people will want to be able to hire, you know, design teams to be reflective of, of the community needs. What I, mean, I want to get into some of the hurdles um, that you see as far as being diverse and, and having, um, you know, equity, diversity, and inclusion. But how do you, how do you define those terms? I mean, the EDI. It, it you don't we don't want it to be a buzzword, but we hear EDI because now you don't even say it fully. Equity, diversity, and inclusion—they're all very different. But how how do you define each of those? Well, EDI I think already is a buzzword. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so there's that, but I, but I, I appreciate the question, and I, I, it's very interesting because I, I think that in talking to a team or a client uh, or an audience, that is often going to be the place where I want to start a definition of terms. Uh, what is equity? Um, what is diversity? Uh, and I think that it, it. This is going to be a little bit difficult in the sense that it's going to sound like I'm totally blowing off the answer to the question. It is different every time. Like that it, I think there's some things that we can all agree upon. Everybody wants to be seen and everybody wants to be respected. And if to be empowered, everyone wants to be invited to the table. And so thinking about equity, uh, thinking about inclusion, I think that those pieces are fairly well understood, at, at least at a conceptual level, at, at, at 50,000 feet. Having said that, driving down to an individual opportunity or an individual project, you know, and we're as a, spoken as an architect, as a, as a designer, and looking at a design process, you know, beginning a project, looking at pre-design. The first thing that you have to do is ask the question, who is my user group? Who is my audience? Who am I serving? What is their, what is their need? What is their background? Uh, what, is, what, are, what, is their what are their values? What is important to them? This sets the table for the conversation around equity. We, we, what I think is uh, valuable or important or desirable doesn't matter. It matters uh, what my client and my user group, what they see as important and valuable. I think that's really important as, as we talk about EDI, uh, because I think there has been a lot of I don't want to say lip service, but I think there's been a lot of conversation around uh, diversity, diversity of teams, uh, diversity of practice. But uh, ultimately, there are some hard conversations to have around why uh, most large firms are still majority white owned firms and staff is majority white uh, and why uh, there aren't greater percentages of people of color that are that are doing that work that are in practice, uh, and a lot of that has to do with access to education, access to capital, uh, access to relationships, mentoring, um, 
uh, opportunities for internship, uh, which, you know, I'm, I'm glazing over a, a whole series of, of conversations, but. Well, I mean, those are barriers. So, I mean, let's dig into correct. some, some barriers. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's, social injustice out there. And I'd, I'd say, I mean, there's a movement across society to address social injustice and not just on the weekends, but, you know, through, through, through firms, through companies, through, you know, a, a better corporate impact strategy to really turn the, the table and, and address some of the social injustice. So that's, that's coming. Firms don't really know, you know, how, or they're, they're doing it in different ways to trying to learn. And I would think as a cohort, I mean, architects and engineers, I mean, they go in, to these practices to serve people, to serve society. And I almost think that that people group is probably more inclined to jump on and help address social injustice issues. That being said, part of it is education. And, you know, you tapped into some of the barriers that, you know, as far as, you know, how, well, we hire the best person coming out of school. Okay, well, let's back up the bus to say, well, who's coming out of school today? I would think, Come, or, you know, who's, or who's going into school. Right. It, it, because, I mean, maybe to get an architectural degree or an engineering degree, you kind of need to know and decide before or in high school that you want to do that because it's a front end loaded education. And in order to right. think of that about in high school, you really need to be in math and science as a grade school or, or middle school. And so right. you kind of have that education, but then it's, well, you, now you need unpaid internships to look good in high school to get into the college and well who can afford the unpaid internships and who's mentoring to get to that point um, and then even in college who gets the unpaid internships or the lightly paid internships to get into the best firms and to have those opportunities and and if somebody is so you know inclined well maybe become a doctor or a lawyer um, or and, and not really go into some of these technical fields. And so th there's a lot of barriers, and I just said a lot there, but I mean, I, let's drill in because I think when people understand what some of the barriers are, we, we might do a little bit more with the STEM education and helping out with ACE programs and, and really kind of getting into the community and build, making the pipeline bigger, not just taking what the pipeline gives out. Correct. Right, and I think that that is, critical i think it's certainly a conversation that that i'm having internal to our firm here but i think for any firm that's interested in diversifying their own pool of applicants uh it has to start with k-12 education uh many so i'm, I'm a part of uh the american institute of architects seattle chapter diversity roundtable and one of the things that we do is uh, reach out uh, to the K-8 community and to go into classrooms to provide some general kind of workshops, education to young students, young kids, that architecture is a profession and that it's an opportunity. And that, you know, if you, if you wanna see change in your neighborhood, in your community, that you can do that by becoming a designer. And what the design is. Just to stop, I mean, and, and the reason that's necessary to go into communities because then we don't have the numbers. The numbers aren't there. You don't see the person across the street and the person down the street that is an architect or is an engineer. I mean, it just the numbers aren't there. So we have to infuse that talent to let it be known and try to encourage people. I mean, is that the reason going into K-8s is so important? 
It is, and I think that if you if you interview a hundred architects, there's a high percentage of them that will tell you that their someone in their family was an architect. Uh, someone that was a good friend of the family or a good friend of theirs was in the industry. And what you, what you find is that there's a leg up given. I mean, it's, it's, it is the way we are as human beings. Like we, we reach down to the people that we know to open a door and to invite them in. Um, architecture began as a, as a wealthy white gentleman's profession. Um, it has changed a great deal, uh, and I think the idea of citizen architect is very prevalent now. Uh, architect, architects serving the community. Uh, but having said that, so many inner city schools and school districts, architecture and engineering is not a clearly understood path for kids to invest in, uh, reasons for them to be excited about art and math, uh, or the opportunity to pursue an engineering class, a drafting class that begins to change how they think, uh, what they can get excited about or do, uh, that's an investment in their own life and an investment in their community. Like that's that it's not a common story that's being told. Um, and for a bunch of us in the profession that are people of color, like we we are weighed upon heavily to tell that story, um, to be mentors for uh, uh, diverse for a diverse population students of color but there aren't enough of us. Um, and so I think starting earlier, uh, being involved in, in K-8 and K-12, uh, getting uh, classrooms of kids excited about uh, learning uh, how to be an architect, engineer, landscape architect, civil engineering, uh, community engagement professional, like all these are all, all these, all, all of these, opportunities where uh, we can begin to actually provide a more diverse pool of uh, designers doing good work. Right, which, which will more and more resemble the general population. But right. how, how, did, how, how did you fall in love with and want to become an architect? And how was maybe your Pacific Northwest experience different from what you might have experienced, say, if you grew up in St. Louis? Well, you know, it's, it is, again, a, an issue of access. So my parents made the very hard decision uh, to move out of the Central District, um, which is a traditionally African-American neighborhood in Seattle, uh, to move from uh, the down, essentially the downtown core of Seattle uh, out to white suburbia. And why did they do that? They did that because it provided their children, myself and my sister, uh, access to a college track education that they did not see that, that uh, we would have uh, if we stayed in the school district. Um, 
uh, that we were born in. It, the reality is, is that, that the uh, quality of education, your zip code uh, are huge determinants for how you will do in life. And I benefited from the difficult decisions that my parents made and the investment that they made in us uh, that ultimately culminated in me being the, the architect that I am today. Um, a, a, a lot of kids don't have that opportunity. They don't have that ability. And so the, the question is, is how, how do we bring those opportunities to uh, kids that live in the inner city or uh, uh, in urban circumstances uh, where, you know, uh, one parent families uh, or impoverished communities, um, uh, kids that, you know, don't necessarily know where they're going to be coming home to sleep at night um, or where their next meal is coming from. I mean, the, the, uh, what what I had growing up was uh, support, uh, access to education, and indirect access to capital because all of my peers, most of them, uh, came from middle class or upper middle class families, which directly relates to the quality of the school district. Um, and so I benefited from that and had uh, access to resources that I would otherwise not have. Um, and because I had access to those resources, I got a higher quality of education. Because I had that higher quality of education, it, oh, it inherently uh, educated me to have a much wider view about what my opportunities were in life and allowed me to make investments in myself that were very different than I would have made if I'd grown up in a different circumstance. And I, I look at that as, you know, just like the numbers of, you know, percentage of different um, ethnicities and um, minority groups, population overhaul, overall versus population and the AEC industry, there's a mismatch. And, and that's a fact, you know, they're, they're just, we're not represented. And, you know, what you just described as, you know, the, the conditions for so many minor, you know, folks, who happen to be born in certain zip codes and are part of minority groups. I think from one, I want to kind of move into how leaders of firms, AEC firms who want to address this issue, want to increase diversity, inclusion, um, and equity. But I think there's almost like an initial starting point that says this stuff is a fact and we're not going to, you know, fight it, try to justify it. It just work needs to be done. We need to do more work um, because there's a gap right now. Uh, we need to improve our teams, our organization, our industry and society as a whole because there's so much benefit to equity, diversity and inclusion. And so we need to start doing something different. Um, and, and then that, so that is going to get into the first piece is education. Like I think just conversation is one where we, we just maybe we're busy, we're consumed, we're not thinking about things because hey, we're running a company. I've got a division, I've got projects, I've got deadlines, but right. we've got to slow down and think about these big um, societal you know, opportunities, I'll say, but they got to start with education. So in the, in the context of a firm comes to you and says, you know, Rico, we want to do more. We, we, need, we want to do some education and training around this. I mean, how do you think 
leaders can can do that and, and institutionalize it so they sort of get the benefit of being able to start making progress? Well, so I'm trying to institutionalize it right now in my own practice, and that's that's this whole design agency initiative that I was talking about before. I think that it it I think you can find a lot of individuals that that would easily say yes to and sign up for the idea of yeah I'm, I I want to go talk to students I want to talk about what's great about the profession and why they should be interested in going and getting a college education around architecture engineering construction um, but I think that's different than uh, firms having as a strategy and understanding diversity of practice is important, not simply diversity of types of projects or communities that we want to work for, but diversity of the workforce as it relates to the quality of the work that we do, the type and quality of the work that we do. Um, I think that in order to institutionalize that type of thinking, you know, it has to, it has to filter through at all levels. So it's about uh, what hiring criteria are, it has to do with what job descriptions look like, it has to do with uh, for principals and project managers, what the criteria of diverse teams uh, is put forth on the front end of projects. It has to do with uh, who we put in front of prospective clients as the team, both diverse in uh, gender, uh, age, and ethnicity. Um, and it has to do with the story that we tell, like uh, what are the values of our practice? Uh, what are the things that we hold as important to us? What, what are the, the uh, from the beginning of the project, what are the things that are important as it relates to success of a project beyond the meeting of program for a facility? Um, and I think that in order to get to that place, there is a fair amount of open-ended discourse that has to happen at the highest level of decision-making in a firm to get to a place of sincere engagement and investment regarding creating a more diverse practice than what that firm has when they begin the conversation. You cannot snap your fingers and become a diverse practice. Um, it's a lot of work um, and that work has to come from a place of acknowledgement that uh, there's, a, there's a huge amount of inequity uh, in the corporate workplace and in order to change that um, people that are in leadership positions are actually going to have to give up some of their authority and power and that I, I do want to get into that because you when we were at the conference you said a, a couple of things that I think were just you know very very thoughtful but provocative and uncomfortable and I think um, able to move people along in a different way. Um, but I want to just talk, I, I think what you just said just made a lot of sense and having the open discourse 
um, to engage and invest in new ways to have different outcomes. And I think fundamentally, you know, we talk about values, but even before values, I think the leadership team or the leader leaders really have to believe in EDI, the equity, diversity, and inclusion. They have to believe it and want it to happen to then just start triggering the, and we value this. And so now we want to have these new behaviors, whether it be, you know, a, a, a new task force or a strategic planning group or an, or an employee resource group to be able to talk about these, these items so that we can. And I, th I think ultimately it may include getting out in the community and doing ACE programs and STEM programs and more strategic, you know, like I've said before, strategic corporate impact so that you're really kind of having that experience, but having it, you know, not just a nice thing we did, but a transformational experience where we can really kind of affirm what our beliefs are and, and move in that new direction. But, you know, I, so I want to get into the power. And so two, two things that you talked about um, were, what we don't want to have happen and, and what maybe if I, and I'm paraphrasing, so please correct me is sort of the concept of we're moving in a certain direction, but we don't, we want to make sure we're not brownwashing. And one of the hurdles that in impediments is the people being afraid to use their power for equity, diversity, and inclusion um, or not wanting to give up the power. So they, and I'll, I'll let you explain, but from what I remember, it was, you know, there are conversations that happen that might be less informed. Someone recognizes it, but doesn't shut it down. And so you just don't move the conversation forward in a new way. Yeah, so there's a lot there. Um, one interesting thing, and so this is a, an easy place, an easier place to start the conversation. If, if, if what, what do you, one of the things you talked about is leadership buying in uh, and doing so in a sincere way. One of the things that, that we know is true is that the way that an individual grows into a position of leadership is being is by being afforded the opportunity to grow the opportunity to try new things the opportunity to lead something they haven't led before that happens in a corporate office structure because someone that's in charge invites someone that is not in charge to be in control of a thing, whatever that is, whether that's a design opportunity, a project opportunity, a, a, uh, uh, an interview process, uh, a br bringing in a project opportunity that, that the firm wouldn't have thought of or looked at or had access to uh, without that individual's participation. These are all the things. What, what we know is that uh, mentorship, uh, not, not kind of programmed mentorship, but just natural mentorship, uh, people find kinship 
with others that they see similar experience that they see as having a similar experience to their own and naturally we want to help people that we find ourselves aligned with and this inequity in firms the part of the problem is that you know you have a a a, a community of of uh people of color that don't look like leadership of a firm and you know when that leadership is making a decision about who they are uh providing opportunities uh project opportunities to or leadership opportunities to not as a um conspiracy theory but just as a natural way of being they are going to reach out to people that they know that they uh, have similar uh, cultural habits with that they go out and hang out with like it 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 it's just people hanging out with people and and that's affinity bias right i mean that's a legit right type of bias and, and it, is, it is a legitimate type of bias and i and i when when i when i started having a conversation around investing in community and doing outreach in community um one of the and going into the classroom and and uh providing education opportunities where we are are educating a a you know uh an, an inner city classroom about the opportunities uh in architecture one of the the the, the breaking down the barriers and breaking down the biases what can begin to happen is the building of new relationships with individuals that you would not otherwise have begun a conversation with or built a relationship with so there i mean to be blunt there are a number of african american architects and designers and interns who have been introduced into the practice of my firm that weren't here before I got here and why because I have because I have those relationships outside of the walls of my practice having leaders that are diverse leads to having a workforce that is more diverse but or I should say and if you have uh, a majority right now a majority culture majority white culture out doing good work in the community and building relationships with a POC community you are going to start making those connections and bringing people along or providing opportunities for people that don't necessarily look like you right well in the relationship builds affinity right is so it, it's right. that's exactly right that we overtly or right. you know see on the outside it's it's affinity as we're humans and we actually have a very similar personality we grew up in a different neighborhood but we have this in common and we care about the same things and so the affinity bias is still alive but it's different because we put ourselves in a different situation and you know i know for my many years of service work and mission work i mean 
the more work that I've ever done with other people, the more we are exactly the same in so many ways as far as our dreams and aspirations and what we want out of life and for our families and opportunities. And, and so the, the common bond is there, but sometimes we have to, in order to start, I mean, if, if we have a diverse leadership team with the laws of affinity in a way, I mean, we will continue to replicate that. But if we were starting from square one, I think leaders have to go to a new place. You can't go to the school you grew up in. You've got to go to the school down the street, you know, to do the STEM work. If you really care and want to, you know, be able to help the industry, help your firm, help, you know, the community, it's doing something different. And um, I think that's just a fact. We have to do something different. Well, and it's also what you describe is the hard work. It is easier to go back to the school that you came from because it's the school that you're familiar with and uh, that you can trust because you experienced it. You know what the quality of student you are going to get or the quality of intern that you're gonna get out of that school or that program. The harder work is going to the, uh, you know, more impoverished school district uh, the inner city community uh, and uh, immersing yourself in and becoming a part of that community and getting and and getting to know um, and taking risk. I mean that inherently is risk. Mm, one of the things that you began to talk about a moment ago made me think about trust and shared experience. It this. The work that needs to be done to create a more diverse practices is, is a, it's a long game. In order to have the affinity, in order to build trust, build knowledge, build understanding of value uh, as evidenced in other communities that aren't, aren't the one that you know, um, you can only do that by spending time. And that's, that's time spent in uh, uh, community engagement. That's time spent in classrooms with uh, people that don't look like you. That's time spent uh, interning. I, I mean, bringing in interns that are from different cultures that like you are mentoring them and they are mentoring you, <laughs> right? Um, and you, you just as you read a new book and you pick up new language and become more well-educated. That is true as you engage other cultures and other communities and other people that lie outside of your own frame of reference. You begin to have a more rich understanding of the universe around you. But, we, and, but we're willing to spend the time. We're, we're willing to play the long game because we do it in client development, right? If we want to work in a certain community, sure. um, we, we, we do, we invest the time. If we want to have a, a, a thriving internal culture, firms do invest in that. If we want to have long-term growth and profits, we do invest in the systems and the things. So it's not like we don't spend the time. I guess it's making it a priority. Like this is so important to us. And, you know, one of the the you know, the reality is too, we have these long-term investments. I mean, there's immediate engagement once we start. 
And so if we do have a, a strategic plan to do this and have that open discourse and, and, and the plan, once we start taking action, we have engagement. I mean, the, we're never going to have all the results because they're down the road. We're not going to have immediately, but people start to talk and get engaged and you can build momentum. So to me, any of these things, you know, EDI, put it in with long-term growth and profits and sustainability and innovation and all those things that we want to do as, as firms and organizations, they're all long-term plays, but with the right strategy and actually taking action steps, we can have immediate engagement and we just grow from there. And ultimately we do have those long-term outcomes that we're looking for, but there's a series of activities and outputs we have in the meantime. Yeah, I, I think that if there is a challenge in the conversation, part of it is around, in air quotes, the business case for diversity. So you said, and it is very true, we do make the investment as it relates to client cultivation. And I think that if there's an understanding that diversity of workforce uh, equates to client opportunity, then we will continue to do, make the investments and do the work. Like I, I would like to say that, that we as corporate firms would make the investment in EDI, um, equity, diversity and inclusion uh, as a moral obligation. But the reality is, is that for most firms, if you're gonna see the change in the capitalist culture that we live in, it's probably going to be because they understand the business case and they understand that having a more diverse workforce means being able to deliver the uh, products, the buildings, the designs, the projects, the, the, the cultural process, uh, design process that uh, are growing, our growing diverse clients require. And that if they, if, you don't have it, they're gonna go somewhere else. I have a client that just picked up the phone and called us yesterday saying, you know, we have this project that we want to have done and we wanna know who your uh, women-led team is from, from the principal in charge down to the uh, project manager and the project architect and the whole, the whole bit. Um, and if you can't respond, then, well, then you can't respond <laughs> and somebody else, somebody else will. And do you think that the, the, the tide is changing a little bit? I mean, clients are becoming aware. They're becoming aware of, and they're asking for things. And, and, do you, and, and, and staff, some of the you know, staff want, are attracted to firms and organizations who do you know, talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion and follow through. I mean, is it almost like a criteria? Just like, you know, we want to make sure that you're also about, you know, not just great products and services, but you're also about serving the community. And, and in this way, you know, equity and diversity is important. So I want to be part of a culture, part of an organization that values that because it's what I value. And eventually people who don't change, I mean, it might be good for a while, but, but they might miss out. They're going to, well, certainly miss out on talent, but are they going to miss out on some of the market forces and the talent forces that are already taking place? Or do you think it's, it's an idea that hasn't taken hold or it's just slowly taking hold and people are catching on and well, if catch on faster, it's better. And some people might be left out. So I think this is where the, the greenwashing and brownwashing discussion comes in. I, I, 
where we started that discussion when we met was around the idea that um, some time ago, 15 years ago, uh, firms uh, started trying to feature sustainable components of, uh, of their projects and their portfolios, but as afterthoughts, not as drivers for their design process. And, and now, um, so many firms, uh, sustainability and uh, what many of us now call getting to zero uh, carbon neutral projects, um, like that is actually a, a driver in how we design projects, uh, all projects, regardless of uh, public, private, or where the funding's coming from. Um, as it relates to social equity, social sustainability, social like diversity um, uh, on our teams, I, I think that there's you know, we're, we're, we're in a dangerous time. We're, we're at a time that I think that there is a lot of box checking that yes, there's a lot of uh, agencies and public entities that wanna know what your diversity program is and, and you like lay out what that program is, uh, but there's not real investment being made behind it that's integral to how uh, firms practice. Um, and I, I I mean, I think there's, I think there's a lot to discuss there. I think that the the, the short version is that um, if a firm is truly trying to meet the needs of a changing marketplace, um, then becoming a more diverse firm is a daily, weekly, monthly activity that has to hit the business plan um, and it informs uh, where some of your marketing dollars go it informs some of where your HR dollars go it it has to do with who gets brought in as interns who gets promoted uh, who finds themselves in leadership positions in the practice it, it it has to be fairly comprehensive and it takes a long time Right. And I think you, you've said the term, you know, an, an integrator, and, and that makes me think of, you know, a few years ago, Deloitte had done a big study of, um, you know, really in generally corporate impact, you know, business trying to make an impact on society. And they had grouped, organ, you know, businesses into four different archetypes. And there was one, you know, shareholder maximizers. And then the second grouping were corporate contributors. The third grouping were impact integrators and the final grouping were social innovators mm -hmm. and sort of the you know shareholder maximizer is pretty self-explanatory kind of the old school thinking i mean even the, the business roundtable just changed their thinking on that and they've come out with a much more balanced look at you know who the stakeholders are and we're there to serve all the stakeholders so that being aside sort of the old school way to think about business only about shareholders you know even the business leaders today don't even think that's true but you kind of get into the corporate contributors and you know trying to do the right things but kind of being disjointed and maybe not having you know we're doing this over here but not over there and it's a little bit of you know not, it's just disjointed but then you kind of get into the, the next groupings the impact integrators we're designing this as part of our 
business strategy. It's important to us. We have KPIs. We we're measuring how, what type of education, what type of community development, what type, what is our hiring, what is our, you know, recruitment and retention. Where are we going to schools? I mean, they're measuring that because their impact is part of their business culture. And then the social innovators are just on the other side. I mean, it, it, it's it's like the Tom shoes or the Patagonias. I mean, in, in that case, you know, the, the, you can't separate the business from the social, you know, aim of the organization. Right. But I think a lot of organizations today are shifting from corporate contributors into this impact integrators. And I think equity diversity yeah. can be one of those topics. It's a strategic planning and we're going to do things because it's part of our long-term goal. We're going to, we're going to integrate that impact in and have real KPIs and it's part of somebody's real job, not just an aspiration. So I think that's how leaders are thinking about this and it's really augmenting strategic planning or, you know, doing more because, you know, our KPIs are great. We've made progress, but we want to do this because we don't want to be just start and then not stop because, I mean, it does get into, you know, um, in, in authenticity today and your talent knows, you know, even yes. if you get the job, your talent knows. And, and there's something that's disconcerting about being with an organization and we're never perfect. And there's, there's always, you know, you know, sort of big movements, you know, two steps forward, one step backwards, but we're making progress. I mean, that's just natural life. And we got busy with this project or we made it this, you know, but if there really isn't any progress and we say it and don't live it, that really eats at the culture. And I don't think top talent really wants to be a part of that long-term or they're not going to be fully engaged. Well, or they, uh, are are cultivated as as new talent and then they leave. Well, um, that's what I mean, right? They're they're not engaged, and the people who see this happening won't be engaged, and ultimately, employee engagement drives revenue. You know what I mean? Just like yeah. you can make the business case for for EDI and better decisions and collaboration and serving the clients in a new way, um, a better way. Employee engagement, no matter who is the employee, it has direct bottom line benefits. I don't think anyone argues that today. Well, and going back to a discussion about uh, a millennial generation, uh, you have a workforce right now that wants to be seen and wants to be recognized and wants to be empowered to do the work that they want to do. Um, and that work is about um, community engagement, community transformation, social change. Uh, and you know, we do have a requirement to help uh, bring that generate young generation of designers up uh, to empower them and empower ourselves. Like you say, it does drive the um, success of our practices. And that goes back to a discussion about giving up power. If we are... You, 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 you can go into any of a number of firms where you're going to find a, a, some portion of the staff which says, I've been doing this for 25, 30 years, and this is the way the work needs to be done, and, and I'm in charge, and I, 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 I do it, and I have a staff that supports my design um, or my design process or my design work. Changing the paradigm you have a younger generation who wants to be engaged in their community and bring their enthusiasm uh, and investment into uh, the office space 
and they want to lead the design effort. They want to be in charge. And, you know, it's a tough conversation. I have over 25 years of experience for how to make a project successful. I cannot simply step aside. In order for a project to be successful, that, that value has to be leveraged. At the same time, I do not have the same perspective or in some cases community investment as some of my younger counterparts and I need to be led by them as they need to be led by me. And that co-leadership model is not one that, that exists as a standard in the profession right now. We're seeing it on the technical side of things. When uh, Autodesk Revit became the standard for production, you saw a lot of principals sitting next to young architects and interns uh, where the young architect and intern who understands the software is sitting next to an old seasoned architect learning how to detail uh, the product, the, the wall section, the, the uh, exterior envelope detail. Um, and in that, there came equity, a design conversation where the old seasoned architect is, is, is working with the, the uh, young intern where there's mutual need. <laughs> the, the old architect needs the young architect and the young architect needs the old architect and there's a, there's a conversation of design equity that comes out of that. Um, we want that in all of our firms, in all of our projects, um, because they're, 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 that is equity. And not just on the technical side of things, but on the design innovation side of things and on social justice side of things. Right. And when you say power, I mean, it, it does cut like, oh, holding on to power. And we can think about it in different ways, but it, you know, it, oh, well, you know, we need a more empathetic leader. We need a more humble leader. We need to be aware. We need to look at the opportunities to be diverse and learn and grow and, and the value in different from different perspectives. And, you know, it takes a leader who really wants to be self-aware and have high emotional intelligence. And we say that's needed. You know, we need to do that, but there's no real impetus to do that other than an individual wanting to do it or to have, you know, organization that really encourages and as part of their leadership development, you will, you know, this is important and we want you to value it. And, and when you, we, when, when we bring you to the pond, you will want to drink from the water. But, you know, I think less that it is, it is essentially power and maybe it doesn't come from a bad spot because it's like, I'm in responsible charge. I'm stamping this set of drawings. I'm doing this. We've done it this way before, but I think that we, we've got to have this conversation about it because, you know, I, I think it, that stops some of these ideas from happening. And once the door has been shut, people probably don't knock at it anymore. They'll just go to a different team or the ideas won't come. And uh, I'm just going to tell me what to do and I'll do it. And you took what could have been a career and you turned it into a job and, and, and nobody's winning. But I think, you know, it does come down to as typically does the supervisor or the manager or the leader being open and wanting to invite those conversations and be able to give up that power and decision-making and even in the discussion. Well, and take on more risk, right? Because doing, doing it, whatever it is in a way that you are not familiar with or that you're not used to, or that you or that's different than the way you've been doing it for the last 20 years does invite and require greater risk. Um, and if I'm stamping the set of drawings and I don't inherently know what's getting put into them, um, 
I have to spend more time to be a part of the process with the team that I'm working with um, to ensure that, you know, I mean, it, it's banal, but it is real, that risk is being managed and that, uh, you know, all, all of the, the Q&A and code and all those, all those things that we know are uh, the, the things that are insur in insurance uh, gets hit by, um, that those are being satisfied at the same time that we are allowing uh, a more diverse workforce push us to do the work differently. Right. And, the, and the, the flip side of that risk and, and managing that risk, like acknowledging that there's some risk. I mean, the flip side is acknowledge it and do it well is reward. It's reward of innovation, employee engagement, a, a rich yeah. culture, recruitment retention. retention. That, that's the reward for engaging and assuming some of these new ideas and new design approaches. It, well, and a lot of these things yeah. seem to have like, you do one thing and it, it has a five part ripple effect. I mean, you're doing multiple things at the same time. Right. Let's also suggest that a more diverse workforce also leads to a better quality of projects that, that design improves when the voices around the table have a more diverse set of perspectives. Well, I think for a lot of complex design, I mean, there is no, a lot of what we do if we're designing buildings or structures or new approaches, I mean, there isn't one way to do it. I mean, if you hire one right. firm versus another firm, I mean, they come up with slightly different, they might use the same process, they might use the same system or building materials, but the design is always going to be a little different. But what makes it good, better, or best? I mean, it's all going to be somebody's creativity and the more diversity, the more idea. I mean, even if there were, you know, we have 20 ideas on the table, you're only going to take one or two, like at least you had them all on the table. You're taking the best one and two instead of picking one or two out of five. Well, and if you have a more diverse workforce and you, and that, that diversity is leveraged uh, in different project opportunities, what that designer hears on that team and which ideas they they collect and drive is um, different and informed by the difference of uh, their cultural bias or the quality of their uh, community engagement with the culture that they're serving. So based on your position, and we've been talking, I could continue to talk with you about this, um, but, um, it, what do you think, and sort of closing, uh, if I'm a leader, if I run a division or if I, you know, I'm on the board of directors of a firm and, and, I, and I want to do more in this regard, I mean, is there, do you recommend, you know, here, here are the next one or two things that you really should do to, to start the discussion? Well, start taking not everyone's going to like this and a lot of people are going to say no to it, but cultural sensitivity training is actually a real thing. Um, and so uh, every board, and most of them are, you know, going to be majority white organizations, um, like bringing in that facilitator, having the cultural sensitivity training, acknowledging where we are and where you are in that conversation and what your bias is. That's the very first step 
of becoming a different organization. It has to start with leadership saying, we're not doing enough. We understand we're not doing enough. We're okay acknowledging the fact that we're not doing enough and we are interested in doing something about that and know that it's a long haul, a long process. It's gonna cost money, but that that money has a return, but that's slow money, it's not fast money. Um, I think if you, I think if it begins there, then yes, there's a diversity program. There's, there's key diversity hires, like where you're bringing in uh, HR staff and uh, design leadership that, that lives, breathes and cares about diversity of practice. It is what you described in terms of social innovators, like what, I do every day. I got into architecture because I care about people and I believe that I can affect social change through design and architecture. That's why I get out of bed every morning. If a firm wants to become a more diverse practice, they have to bring on people that know what the power of diversity is and their job is to help create, lay out both the programs, but also affect the culture of practice and are empowered to affect the culture of practice that moves the ball downfield, which is not, I mean, it, what, what that program looks like, and I even hate using the word program, but it really is a thing. What that program looks like is gonna change from one firm to the next and like that's a whole session in and of itself. How, how do you successfully take a majority white owned firm and have it become a diverse practice that is as diverse in, internal to the walls of the practice as the communities that are outside its walls? That's, that's complicated. I love that. And maybe that's a topic for another podcast because I, I think that is, is – yeah interest and um but i mean be, as we close here is there anything else you'd like to add um you know for leaders listening today and and how can folks get in touch with you learn more about what you're doing well peter i, I appreciate the opportunity um I, I think it is a really important discussion um I, I i assume that when you post the podcast that like uh my email address is 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 posted alongside of it. Like I, it's, it's certainly a subject that I in, uh, enjoy being able to engage people on. Right. We'll have your contact information and uh, information about you, your bio. They will all be in the show notes with the episode. And so I, I thank you for that. I, I think that, that as a takeaway, I, I do think that we are in a time right now where it's very poignant and there really is a world of opportunity. Um, you know, we're right on we're right on the cliff of another downturn, right? And it may just you know, everyone's calling it the adjustment. So it's it's it what happens and the investments that we make now uh, and what the return on those investments are. Um, that's all what I think a lot of uh, owners of firms are questioning. And I think that what we know is is that the greatest return on investment we can make is investment in um, our staff and our employees. And 
investing in what they care about. And I think more and more our staff cares about social change uh, and diversity, uh, making those investments in sincere ways uh, in that slow money, that that, that really does matter. Um, and it, it matters to the books, it matters to the portfolios, uh, it matters to the culture of the firms you're working in. It, it increases retention uh, and it makes uh, people feel like they are doing work of meaning and value. Excellent. I am. Uh, I want to thank you again for being on, and I appreciate your time and your insight um, and thoughtfulness on this subject. And um, I I wish you well, and I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Peter. Me too. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to get us established. And I truly appreciate that. It also helps get the word out so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. So thank you. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.